morning. Sound like a rainy, rainy day. Good morning. What, what a great day in the life of a church as we honor our graduates today. Um, like Chad said, we've uh, exciting times to be part of the student ministry at Ivy Creek. Uh, even though we're graduating seven, uh, there are I think thirteen or fourteen uh, fifth graders that are coming into sixth grade. So we're kind of growing from the bottom uh, as Awana grows and all that, uh, all those other kind of things. So it's a, it's fun and exciting time, and um, we're excited about it. Uh, one of those things that's adding to our growth is our evangelism ministry. You may have heard Ted speak earlier that we are not going out today because of the weather, uh, but I do invite you, even though I know it's a holiday weekend next weekend, uh, but I invite you to come out with us next Sunday at 2 o'clock, weather permitting, uh, because we're going to go out to our community, and I thought it would be a great opportunity uh, for us to tell people not only about Jesus, but also a way their kids can learn about Jesus and come to our VBS, because our VBS starts the next Sunday, if you can believe that. And please be in prayer for that as, as we head into that. Just a little plug for Miss Caroline. Uh, VBS uh, will start the first week of June. Um, and we already have about 140 kids signed up. So based on how the numbers usually run and uh, people that just walk up and register, we will probably end up having around uh, 250 uh, children here on campus. So uh, it'll be a fun, fun week. Uh, if you are not signed up to volunteer, today is your day. Um, sign up and do that. Talk to Miss Caroline. Uh, even though we might have all our, our classroom spots filled, how awesome would it be for our children to walk across campus as they're going through their different things and just seeing a friendly face, somebody waving, somebody saying hello. Uh, so please do that. Uh, but I'm excited about today. Today's sermon is something that is, that is very much a part of my heart, a part of my passion. Uh, and so let's pray uh, and just ask God to bless it. Uh, Father God, uh, Thank you for bringing us to a time where we can uh, lift your name up in song. Uh, but, Father, as we dive into your scripture, I just pray you use me. May my words be your words today, and then may they bring glory to you. In your name I pray. Amen. As you saw, we did honor our graduates today. Uh, and, and as part of that, started doing some research. And you'll notice on my, the title for my sermon is 900 and 36 weeks. Anybody want to take a guess what, <clears throat> how many, 936 weeks, what that, what that means? You, you cheated. Did you listen on the first sermon? Okay. Yes, 936 weeks are the number of weeks that you have with your child from birth to 18 years of age. So, and since most most children graduate at 18 years of age, the average age, uh, you have 936 weeks of basically your child in your home under your influence. And so uh, that means we have 936 weeks uh, to have the most influence on our children, both as parents, but also as a church. That is our responsibility to what are we going to do with those 936 weeks. What are you going to do as a parent? What are you going to do as a grandparent in those 936 weeks? And so um, as I started looking at this, I started doing some research. And it's very easy to do some research on this. Uh, if you want some of these statistics, 
Uh, Google search is a great place. And so I started looking at some of these uh, because I think we need to see some of the numbers that we're looking at with this generation. Um, and so uh, Lifeway Research tells us that 70% of teens who have been involved with a church youth ministry for at least a year in high school. Now, this is not just some random group of teens that they surveyed. This is not, they didn't go to Mill Creek High School and go, hey, or people that went to Mill Creek High School, hey, you know, do you still go to church? Did you go to church? These are teens that were involved in a student ministry for at least a year out of high school. Uh, some of them probably more. But 70% of those teens that were involved in a student ministry, by the time they are uh, sophomores in college, they have walked away from the church. They have walked away from their faith. Let that sink in. If we had 10 graduates sitting up here, seven of those graduates will fall away from the church by next year. How amazing is that? In the study done by the Southern Baptist Convention's Family Life Council, it was revealed that 88% of the children in evangelical homes leave the church by the age of 18, or at the age of 18. 88%. In 2006, Barna did a study that revealed 61% of today's young adults uh, had been engaged during their teen years, but they are now spiritually disengaged. 61%. Josh McDowell did a study that revealed 63% of teens who claim that they follow Jesus Christ. 63% of those teens don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, of the one true God. 63%. 51% don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. 68% don't believe that the Holy Spirit is a real entity. Only 33% of church youth have said that the church will play a part in their lives when they leave home. Only 33%. Three out of every ten. And then lastly, elect exiles, which did a research study, revealed that only 4% of Generation Y, this millennial generation that we continue to hear about, only 4% of them will be Bible-believing adults. Now, when we compare that to their grandparents, their grandparents out of that age group, 65% are Bible-believing adults. Their parents, almost half, 35% are Bible-believing adults. Now, half is pretty staggering in its own right, but it went from 35% to 4% in one generation. Can you imagine what will happen in the next generation? So obviously these numbers are, are absolutely staggering. They are sobering and they're depressing. And we, you know, obviously something has to change and we, and I, and I mean me, uh, some of y'all may not know, I spent 14 and a half years of my ministry as a student pastor. And so I put myself right in this group of we did such a great job of building up these youth ministries that we didn't disciple the students. What we did instead is we created these silos. We created these columns where the children just stayed in the youth ministry or they just stayed in the children's ministry. 
And we created these really cool environments and really fun things to do, but they had no connection with the rest of the church. So when they graduated and they went off to school, they couldn't find a church that was like their church. Now, if you go to, to University of Georgia or you go to Kennesaw or you go to some of those where you're in a, you're in a pretty good-sized area, yes, you, now you can probably find a church that kind of has that same atmosphere, those same kind of things. The modern church has some of that. But for a lot of these students, they go to these places and they can't find a church that's like theirs. So they just quit going. And so youth ministries of the 90s and the 2000s, really we became a daycare for teenagers. And not so many words, we said, hey, if you'll just drop off your kids here, we'll take care of it from there. We'll take care of their spiritual stuff if you'll just take care of everything else. Just drop them here. We got it. We'll take care of it. We've got teachers. We train our teachers. We'll handle it from there. So as a result, we took the parents out of the equation. And so, and I've seen it over and over and over again, uh, as teenagers come down and they accept Christ, uh, as children come down and accept Christ, I've seen parents sit on the front row and they go, I don't have to worry about that anymore. And they've seen their child's salvation as a finish line. Hey, they, they're going to heaven. I'm good. Rather than a starting line. Of now they can experience this joy of discovering who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ can mean in their lives. And so since we created these children's ministries and these student ministries where we said, we'll take care of discipling your child if you take care of everything else, there is no connection between parents and their children and their spiritual walk. Something's got to change. We've got 936 weeks to affect the lives of these children. And they're gone. That's why VBS is so important. Huge statistics out there about when a child becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. But we can change. We can change the story. We can change the trajectory of this generation. These millennial generations, just as a side, we love to talk about them. We love to talk about how entitled they think they are. We love to talk about how they think they want something for nothing. But they're still going to hell they don't become a believer in Jesus Christ. So we've got to engage in conversation with them. We've got to engage that generation. Because if it goes from 35% of their parents from Bible-believing adults to 4% in one generation, the next generation, what happens? We're at 1% or we're at zero. What does that do to our, our, our country? What does that do to our world? Like I said, I'm a little passionate about this subject. What are we going to do to change this trajectory? What are we going to do to change this direction? Obviously, we've got to go to the Bible. And Deuteronomy chapter 6 gives us a 
beautiful blueprint of what we can do uh, mainly as parents, but what we can do as a church to invest in the lives of these children so that we can change these numbers, so that we can change this direction. As you may know, I, I play golf. I've got a wicked slice. And I can either aim real far left and hope that it gets back to... or I can change what I'm doing so that I can change the direction of the ball. We can either sit back and we can say, okay, those numbers, we can't do anything about those numbers. We're just going to sit here and our churches are going to get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Or we can change what we're doing and get a different trajectory, get a different direction. And Deuteronomy 6 gives us a, a great picture of that. Now, as we get into Deuteronomy, it does have some background. Uh, it's part of the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, uh, believed to have been written by Moses. That's the majority uh, of what's written out there, the first five books. Uh, and so uh, what you get with Deuteronomy, it's, it's commonly referred to as the second law. Deutero to the second law. And so what has happened by the time the Israelites get to this point is they've been out in the wilderness. Because of their sin, uh, because of Moses' sin, God has said, look, this generation will not see the promised land, but the next generation will. It's time for the next generation. It's time for them to see the promised land. It's time for them uh, to move on. And so this book was written kind of as a reminder of God's law to remind the Israelites, hey, remember what I told you. Remember what's happened. I've provided for you. Here's this law as we head into, as you head into the promised land. This is what I want you to know. Very much like these graduates that we just honored. In a couple of months, some sooner, we have one that's heading off to the Marines. What is it, June? Brian, what is it? June 4th? June? What do you got? June 2nd, he is heading to boot camp, uh, Paris Island. Great time to go to Paris Island is in the middle of summer. Um, but in a few months, they're going to drop their kids off at college, and they're going to give them some instructions. And so that's really where we are in the, with the book of Deuteronomy right now, is, is God is saying, look, here's, here's what I want you to know, uh, using Moses in that. Uh, and so... Uh, as we get into chapter 6, God is reminding them uh, of this prayer. God is reminding them what the priorities should be. And so this is part of what's called the Shema. Uh, it's one of the oldest prayer. It is the oldest prayer, uh, daily prayer that the Israelites have, that the Jewish people have. Uh, and it was recited morning and evening. And it's really made up of three parts. Two parts come out of the book of Deuteronomy. One part comes out of Numbers. But this is the beginning of it. And so every morning and every night, if you are a Jewish little boy, a Jewish man, Jewish girl, you are reciting this every day and every night as part of your prayers. And so here we go. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when, you're, when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. 
You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so as we get into chapter 6 of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, God starts, Moses, uh, words of God through Moses, tells us, uh, gives us a great thing we can hang our hat on when we're looking at changing the trajectory, changing the direction of where this generation is headed. And the first thing that we must do is to make sure that God is at the head of everything and commit to him. Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It means that there is only one Lord, and He alone is God. And so we, uh, at this time, uh, if you know anything about ancient culture, um, they worshipped a lot of gods. Uh, you know, they had gods for everything. And God is establishing here, He's like, look, I am the Lord your God, the Lord is one. I am one, I am the Lord, and I am God. I'm all there is. And that's it. You worship me and you worship me alone. Now you may be out there in the audience and you're going, Dave, I know that. I come to church. I know that there's one God. I only worship one God. I don't worship a sun God. I don't worship a rain God. I don't worship... And I know that. But at times, we do worship other gods. We may not worship the rain god, but we do worship the money god. We may not worship the sun god, but we do we worship the success god. What about the scholarship god? It means I don't have to pay for my child's education. So what can I do? What can I sacrifice to get them to that? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. What he's establishing here right off in verse 4 is like, I'm God, I am it. You worship me alone. But not only is he the one God, he is Israel's God. He's the God that brought them out of slavery. He's the God that has provided for them over the last 40 years, providing food, providing water, providing leadership. And what he's asking from them is, I just want total commitment. I am the Lord your God, and I am one. I am He. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Fast forward to the New Testament. Isn't that what Jesus says the greatest commandment? So He's saying, look, I'm the Lord, I'm, I'm one. You should worship Me. Not that He needs us to worship Him, but... He needs us, but he won't cease to exist if we don't worship him, but because of all that he has done for us, we need to worship him. We are to commit everything to God. They are to love God with every single thing that they have. 
They are to give everything to God. Really what it is, it ties love, God's love, tightly with a sense of obedience and loyalty. So what God's asking for the people of Israel here is, I want your loyalty, I want your obedience. Because of the things I have done for you, and because you are my people, then I want you to give me everything that you got. All your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So those are tightly wound together. So then what do we do with this commitment? What are we supposed to do with it? Um, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently... Or verse, verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So Moses is telling them, here's what's coming, and here's what I want you to remember. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So the second thing we can hang our hat on as we go from here and build this foundation is parents must be the spiritual leaders and main disciplers of their children. As I was writing this, I, I learned that discipler is not a word. It'll, if you do it on Word, it, it, it underlines it and tells you that's not a word. It tries to give you other things. Today, it's a word because it best describes, it best describes what we are to be for our children. I'm sure if I asked for a show of hands to the question of how many of you want the best for your children, everyone would raise their hand. We all want the best for our children. But sometimes our priorities get a little out of whack. You know, we did such a great job with, with student, great job of student ministry that, that we built these silos because we thought we knew what was best for your child than you did. We thought we knew how to disciple your child better than you did. And we took it out of your hands. And so it's not that, that, uh, we don't, that you don't care about your children, you know, that you haven't provided that. It's just that sometimes I wonder if we get, if we get our priorities off base. Because uh, think about it. If your child's in school and they're struggling with math, what are you going to do? Get them a math tutor. Or if they're struggling with science or English, you're going to get them a tutor. You're going to get some, some extra help so that they can accomplish that skill and get good grades, right? What about if your child plays sports? Say they're having trouble hitting. You look for a way to get them a hitting instructor. Or find them a, a camp that they can go to so that they can learn how to better hit or pitch or, or whatever. Why don't we do that with our faith? I've had too many conversations with parents of like, my child really struggles with having a quiet time, but they'll get it. They'll get it. I don't want to put too much pressure on them. They'll get it. Whereas we should put as much effort for them to try to obtain that discipline than any other discipline in their lives. Because what's discipline is going to last forever whether they can hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball or whether they're going to live with Jesus forever. 
what's going to last longer? And all too often, I've had conversations with the parents that leave me kind of going, what? Because I'll spend $400 on a bat and $200 on a glove and this much money on, on a camp and this much money on lessons, but yet when it comes time for them to sign up for church youth camp, son, we just can't afford it. Money's not in the budget. Our priorities get out of, out of whack. And I know that you love your children. I do know that. I know you love your grandchildren. But we've got to see the bigger picture. Because far too long we've looked at the smaller picture and you've seen the numbers that we're getting out of that. Parents must be the spiritual leaders and main disciplers of their children. Churches and families have to work together on this. There's an organization called Orange, and they do a big conference uh, at the arena every year. Theologically, we may not always see eye to eye on what they're saying, but this concept is, is, is where I'm at. See, their concept is the uh, parents are, an, are a red circle, the church is a yellow circle. Where those two things come together is orange, which is where the name of the organization comes up. We must work together. We as a church, we want to work with the parents, not in place of you. So it's our responsibility, one that we had not done a very good job at. Now, in defense of student ministry now, they've seen these same numbers, a lot, you know, that 70% number of of students that fall away from their faith by the time they're sophomores in, in college. That number's been out there for a while. And so student ministries are now starting to figure it out and go, what can we do different? And so organizations like Orange came up, where I got the 936. Uh, that's another organization. It, it basically comes from, uh, they encourage you to get a jar, put 936 marbles in the jar when your child is born. And every week you take out a, a marble and you see how much time you actually have to influence your children. So in their defense, they're, they're asking these questions. They're asking the hard questions of what to do differently, which is where some of this is coming from. We want to work with you. We love your children also. And so that's, that's one of the reasons we use Gospel Project. Uh, it was so cool a couple of months ago. Uh, our, our Sunday school class consciously made the decision that we want to do Gospel Project because that's what our kids are learning in their Sunday school class. Uh, and the neat thing about it is my mom's Sunday school class is also doing Gospel Project. So we were sitting around the lunch table one afternoon, one Sunday afternoon, and um, I can't remember exactly which story it was. It was like Joshua in the Battle of Jericho or something. Um, and, and we started talking about it. Mom said something, and then I chimed in, and then Danielle starts, and then Catherine goes, oh, we learned about that in my Sunday school class, and this is what I, I learned about Jesus. D -d -d named awesome things. How beautiful a picture of that, that as we are the disciplers of our children, we are having those conversations with them. We as a church need to provide you with those resources to help you out with that. Like I said, we want to work with you not in place of you. Far too long we've gone where, where we've said, hey, we'll just take it. You just relax for this hour, hour and a half. We'll take care of your kids. Enjoy your coffee. 
But then when the children go off to college, there's no connection anywhere. The parents are that connection as they go. So when they go off to college and they have this Bible class that they've taken at UGA, which is probably not taught by a believer, they start having these questions and they call home and go, Mom, I'm really struggling with this. You haven't had any of those conversations, so you don't... It's a weird conversation to have. So parents must be the spiritual leaders and main disciplers of their children. But also, uh, as we continue... Uh, verse 8, you shall bind them as a sign on your head, and they shall be frontals between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So the third thing that we must do is we must constantly keep the Word of God in front of us. This is a roadmap. This tells us where we're going to go. There's absolutely nothing on this earth that can give you direction better than this. Now, there are some things out there that are written that can help you, that are good, that can add to it, or you don't add to Scripture, but can help you understand it. But this is the only thing that will last forever. And so if we're not using this as our guide, then our priorities are off. That's the beauty of expository preaching. So we're going through verse by verse, looking at every single verse. And even though it's going to take over a year to study the book of Mark, we're going to study all of the book of Mark. So if a tricky theological issue pops up, we're not going to skip over it just because it's convenient. We're going to plow right through it. Now, somebody did have a joke in the first service that when I asked what is 936 weeks, their response was, uh, when, when we'll get done with the book of Mark. But... Um, I assure you it will not be that long. But this is part of who we are at Ivy Creek, this expository preaching, to keep the Word of God in front of us. I mean, look at what it says. It says, you shall bind them as a sign on your head that shall be frontal. Put it right between your eyes, right on the fence post, right on the doorpost. Keep it in front of you. Keep it a part of your life. And when your kids see that, they're going to follow suit. Number four. And you may think, you're like, my kids aren't in the house. My kids are long gone. I don't have any kids. I'm good. It's been a nice sermon, Dave. I enjoyed hearing what you have to say, but I've really kind of tuned you out. I'm not a parent anymore, or you're always a parent but I don't have kids in the house anymore. They've grown. They've got their kids. This point's for you. Even if you are not a parent, you can still be a mentor. You can still teach. There's no such thing as retiring from your faith. I think that's part of our issue in the church as well. As we get people that have... Part of it's our fault. We burn you out. You know, the, the, the age-old saying, 10% uh, of the people do 90% of the work in the church. We've burned you out, and you're ready to sit back. You're ready to just listen to the sermons. You're interested in, in the 936 weeks of the book of Mark. And so, you're, sit back, you're ready to sit and listen, to be retired. 
but you have something to give. Look what it says in verse 10. It says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great good cities that you did not build, and houses full of things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And what we're being reminded of here is like, keep talking about it. Pour into other people. Tell people what's going on. What if they had gone into the promised land and just said, hey, this is our right to have the stuff. This is our stuff. We take it. We'll use it and not ever tell where the stuff came from. Because they were moving into a land that was already inhabited. The houses were already built. The fields were already dug. Everything was already there. But, the God, but God allowed them to take over this land. So if they had gotten many generations along, then they would have forgotten that God is the one that gave it to them. That's our same responsibility today. Someone has gone before you and showed you the way. Now it's your turn. Just real quickly, look at Titus chapter 2 with me. I think Titus gives us a great picture as Paul has written to Titus. And, and Paul was a mentor to Titus, just like he was to Timothy. Um, and, he, and Titus went out and was doing work for Paul. Uh, and he's written this letter as an encouragement to Titus. Uh, to tell him, uh, you know, you're doing a good thing. Here's some things to keep mind of. Here's some things to watch out for. Uh, here's what I want to encourage you with. And in that, Titus chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Older men are to be somber-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves uh, to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So what Paul is telling Titus here, he's like, look, you've got people there to teach. And he continues on, you know, you are to be the example, but also you've got people, you've got older people that can reach to your younger people and teach them. Older men, reach to the younger men and, and show them the way. Teach them about the great things that God has done. Older women, teach younger women about the things of life. If you've ever been, if you've been a part of stepping in the waters while I've been here, you've heard me say, Look at this list of Sunday school classes. Visit any of them. Visit all of them. Because I think there's a way that uh, you may not fit age-wise into a group. You may not necessarily fit into this specific group um, life stage-wise. But you may be able to pour into the people in that class. If we had an older couple come into my Sunday school class, which is mainly younger people, then they may be able to contribute and add and build into the lives of those younger men and women that are in that class. Once again, this is the beauty of Ivy Creek. And our passion is that we have intergenerational worship. 
how cool is it that, that the Whitaker boys can sit next to Ron Winsick, who is world traveler and, and, and playing, what does he play? Is it, the, is it some kind of saxophone? It looks like a clarinet, but I think it's a saxophone of some kind. Is it a saxophone? Ron's world, you know, travels the world playing a saxophone, and he can pour into the lives of these boys and teach them about music. But also, how cool is it that before they're getting ready for uh, rehearsal or, or they're just kind of hanging out before the worship service, he can also pour into their lives spiritually because they're sitting next to him every single week. And that's why we believe so much in intergenerational worship is that we're all in that boat. We worship together. We praise God together. We suffer together. But through all of that, we teach each other. And we learn from each other. And so don't think just because your, your kids have grown and, and gotten out of the house, or if you don't have kids at all, that you can't contribute, because you can. Be out there and be a mentor. Because as we draw to a close, there is hope. If we do these foundational things, we can change the direction of this generation. We can make that number go up instead of go down. Because there's a recent, one more study, there's a recent study that took 35 years to do and where they tracked uh, and asked questions of this particular group of people. Um, and so it was a 35-year study focusing on questions of how religion gets passed across generations uh, was, was the subject of the study. And the results of the study were the, these three things came out of the the. Three, three, three conclusions. Parents will continue to be the single, parents continue to be the single greatest influence on their children's faith. You know, a lot of times we put trust in, in youth ministers, we put trust in coaches, uh, we put trust in teachers to have that influence. But we are continued to hit in the face that parents are the greatest single influence single greatest influence. I think we saw on the news this week of coaches who've gotten in trouble because they will let us down with inappropriate behavior. Youth ministers will let you down. It's the single greatest, and parents, I mean, we've all messed up with our kids, but you are still the greatest influence on your children's faith. Number two, when a child sees and hears that faith actually makes a difference in mom and dad's lives, they're much more likely to follow suit. Doesn't that make sense? If they can see that, that, that your relationship with Jesus Christ makes a difference in your life, it's going to make a difference in their life. And they're going to ask questions. They're going to, they're going to want to know, hey, why did you make that decision that way? It, it, you know, According to the world, that's the worst decision you could ever make. But when you can say, you know, God just led me to do that, and they can see uh, the fruits of that later down the road, oh, Dad, I can see why you did that. And then thirdly, young adults are more likely to share their parents' religious beliefs and participation if they feel they have a close relationship with those parents. And so one and three are, are, are work together. Um, not only are they the single greatest influence, but also... Um, 
having a close relationship with your kids, talking about religious stuff will affect their future. And so as we wrap up, uh, we come to our sermon in a sentence. To change the direction and trajectory of the younger generation, we must recognize God as the head of everything. Commit to be the spiritual leaders in our homes and constantly keep the word of God in front of us. And remember that we are never too old to influence and mentor someone. And so I want to close us out today by reading uh, Psalm 78. I think it wraps everything up very beautifully. Um, and it's probably, you know, David was a part of this culture, and so he's heard the Shema, uh, he's heard this scripture, um, and so as he, as he writes, uh, Psalm 78, verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from, from of old things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but will tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Verse 5, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the, ch the children yet unborn, and arise to tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. How amazing is that? That the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God. And shouldn't that be our goal all the time? to give our hope to the next generation, to give them something to hope for, because where we're headed is we're headed to in a world without hope because we're headed to a world without Jesus, which is the only thing that gives us hope. So that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So, let us not be like that generation before. Let us not be like that generation that's talked about at the end, that generation who uh, is stubborn and rebellious, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Let's be the generation that changes the trajectory of the next generation Let's commit to love the Lord our God with everything we got. Let's be the spiritual leader and disciples of our children. Let's keep the word of God in front of us. And let's mentor somebody. Let's pour into the lives of other people. Because something's got to change. That 4% becomes 0% really fast. Let's pray.